This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And I'm the founder of Think Productive. We help people to make space for what matters and get more done. And we partner with some of the world's leading companies who share our mission to transform the world of work. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is Dr. Christian Bush. Christian is the director of the Global Economy Programme at NYU and a former director of the LSE's Centre for Innovation. He advises companies all over the world on how to foster creativity, innovation and luck. He's also the author of Connect the Dots, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. So if you want to know how to get luckier in your career, this episode is for you. And we also talk about biases, curiosity, productivity and much more. This is Dr. Christian Bush. I'm with Dr. Christian Bush. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. Great to be here. And um, I think I can hear Washington Square Park in the background in, um, in Manhattan. Is that right? Yes, and most likely a squeaky baby. We just had a, a newborn. <laughs> so you have a squeaky baby in the room and, uh, and New York in the background. So, um, uh, so that's, that's a cool start. Um, and um, we're going to talk um, about your book, Connect the Dots. Just before we get into that, so um, when they send the little biog through, um, it said that you're director of, CGA, director of the CGA Global Economy Programme at New York University and a former director of LSE's Innovation Lab. So just before we get into the book, I thought I'd just ask you the question, like, what does your day-to-day work look like? What's a typical day um, like for you? Well, it's very focused on what we'll probably talk about today in terms of the question of how do we take that mindset that we've seen work around the world and take that into curricula, take that into, you know, understanding in our research, how does that develop? So it's a lot of research, a lot of kind of uh, wondering why things happen and what the patterns are behind things and then teaching and, and, and running those programs. Um, and the center itself is all about the question of, you know, what's the future of capitalism? How do we think about organizations differently? How do we, you know, bring together profit and purpose at scale? And, and what's the kind of mindset we need for that? Yeah, and um, have you figured out what the future of capitalism is yet? Well, it's, I guess it's a long journey. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's interesting because it, when you think about it that way, um, how much, you know, of the focus on capitalism is always about systems and structures and things. But yeah. at the end of the day, it all comes back to mindsets, right? How do we, mm. at the end of the day, design systems that allow us to, you know, become who we're truly capable of becoming? How do we, uh, you know, incentivize people to, to live a life that's joyful and meaningful? And I think uh, that's probably a lot of what we'll talk about today as well. Yeah, and that fits in really well with Beyond Busy. So um, let's talk a bit about the book. So the book is Connect the Dots, um, uh, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. Um, and I thought I'd start with a question that you do cover in the book. Um, but so the first question is, um, when in your own life have you been lucky? Oh, numerous times. I think, I mean, the first the first time that, that, that I feel was very... Um, you know, formative for, for me was actually uh, more of a bit of a blind luck in terms of, you know, I used to be that kid in high school who was kicked out of high school, had to repeat a year, 
probably held the unofficial world record of how many dustbins and trash cans you can knock over on your way to school when you're driving. And then one day I wasn't so lucky anymore and, and crashed into four parked cars and all of them completely destroyed, including my own. And, um, you know, that was kind of a formative moment because I, I won't forget the policeman who came to the scene and he was like, oh, my God, he's still alive. And, you know, that idea that I was supposed to be dead, that stuck with me. I asked myself all these weird questions, you know, if I would have died, who would have come to my funeral, who was actually, you know, who would have actually cared? And at that point, I had only depressing answers. And so, you know, that was kind of like the moment that set me on that path of trying to figure out what feels meaningful to me. And uh, I started reading that book, highly recommended, uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is all about how do we find meaning in crises. And from then on, you know, I've, I've realized, hey, what, what gives me meaning is connecting ideas, connecting people, and, and, and that spark that comes from it when, when you do that. Yeah, and you tell in the book that story how your friend was supposed to be in the car with you and then at the last minute, sort of changed their mind and then weren't in the car with you. So even though you survived, you may have ended up living with the idea that you had killed your friend. So there's like lots of lots of luck all happening in that moment, right? Absolutely. And, and you know, the way I live life now, I just had a, you know, two years ago at the outset of COVID, I had another near-death experience. And, and uh, it, uh, you know, kind of makes me very aware that we might have less time on this world than we think we have. And so we could run in front of a car every day. We could... Uh, you know, get COVID and, and, and it might not work out well, we might get a terminal disease. And so the point is, I think a question that I ask myself a lot is, what is really meaningful? What feels meaningful? And if I would be on my deathbed tomorrow, do I feel I really lived a meaningful life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what's interesting about luck is, so that's an example of sort of pure chance. But what you're talking about in the book is something slightly different from that. So um, do you want to just break down like what you see as luck and then what you see as serendipity? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, usually when we think about luck, we think about something that just happens to us, right? It's very passive. It's kind of being born into a nice family that loves you, things like this. We can't really do a lot about this, right? It's very passive. But serendipity is about smart luck. It's about intelligent luck where we create it ourselves. And so to give you an example, you know, imagine you have erratic hand movements like I do, uh, then you spill a lot of coffee. And so imagine you spill coffee over someone in a coffee shop and they look at you slightly annoyedly, but you sense there might be something there. You don't know what it is. You just sense there might be something there. And now you have two options, right? Option number one is you just say, I'm so sorry. Here's a napkin. You walk outside and you think, ah, what could have happened had I spoken with that person? Option number two, you start that conversation. That person turns out to become the love of your life or your co-founder or your next client. The point is our reaction to the unexpected, us making the accident meaningful. That's what serendipity is a lot about. And so when thinking about serendipity, I think there's two pieces that it's not just an event that happens to us, but yes, there is some randomness. There's an unexpected event, but then it's about us. What do we do with this? How do we connect the dots and turn that into something positive? Yeah, and connecting the dots is about seeing the triggers and then using tenacity, right? Exactly. I mean, it's, it's really a lot of times, you know, we might miss serendipity because we don't see the initial potential serendipity trigger. And I'll give you an example in, in a second. And then a lot of times we, we might see something unexpected, but not do anything with it, right? And, or have the tenacity to actually go through with it. And so that's really behind a lot of this. But to give an example, I mean, take one of the, the quintessential ones, which is a couple of decades ago, some researchers were giving people medication uh, against angina pectoris, the, the disease, and uh, they realized unexpectedly so there was some kind of movement happening in male participants' trousers. And so what would we usually do if we recognize it? 
we would probably say, oh my God, that's embarrassing. Let, that, that's what a bloody side effect. Let's try to kind of either ignore it or uh, you know, find a better way to cure angina without having that kind of side effect. They did the opposite. They said, you know what, that's unexpected, but there's probably a lot of men in the world who might have a problem in that department. So why don't we develop a medication around this? And this is how Viagra became one of the best-selling medications. And, and you'll see that with a lot of innovations, you know, up to 50% of innovations and inventions come out of moments where something goes wrong or there's some kind of unexpected thing, but we have to see it and then we have to do something with it. And a lot of times, similar to this example in the coffee shop, it's not enough to just have that initial kind of moment of serendipity. You gotta go on dates, you gotta go on meetings, you gotta actually then turn it into something in the long run yeah and there's some lovely examples of that in the book i love the one with um uh shah wasamund and she uh goes to interview chris eubank the boxer and so she thinks she's just writing an article for him and then basically they sort of struck up a conversation and then he ends up becoming like he offers her the, the job as his like personal pr person is that right yeah, and, and that's the fascinating thing, right? That in a way, it really comes to this idea that serendipity comes by definition from the most unexpected of places. And like this example, right? A lot of times it might come out of something where you expected something completely different to happen. And, and Graham, I think the exciting thing about this is I grew up in Germany where we are used to planning. We're used to kind of like having a plan, having a strategy and figure it all out. And then you go into real life and you're like, oh my God, this is scary. This is anxiety uh, triggering here that, that, like, that we can't control everything. And so at the core of this mindset is to say, the unexpected doesn't have to be just a threat to our plan. Actually, it might lead us into the really interesting directions once we also see it as a potential partner. And that's what she did. She essentially said, look, this is unexpected, but let me do something with it. Maybe I didn't want to go into expose direction. Maybe this could be my new direction. So is part of what you're saying in this book really kind of backing up this idea of you make your own luck? So do you believe there are kind of people who are uh, inherently set up to be lucky because of what they do and then people who are unlucky for the same reason? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated by uh, this, you know, current work is that essentially it's a science-based framework for saying, you know, it's not just us believing something, but actually we've, we've, we've studied it. We've seen it over years and years and years across different stories, right? You would have stories of entrepreneurs in Kenya to the CEO of XYZ Company to the person in London. They're all very different stories, but there's patterns behind what they've been doing that made it more likely that serendipity happens. And so, you know, we can talk about the different ways we can study it, being at experiments or being at um, longitudinal studies or else. But the fascinating thing is then you can derive what are exercises for building that muscle. And so to give you one example, maybe to, to, to show how, how an experiment could help us to understand a little around this, one of my favorites um, that's around kind of how do we look at the world? How do we perceive the world? How alert are we towards the world, which then kind of frames a little bit um, how we actually can live in the world. And I'd love to ask you and, and your viewers, actually, do you consider yourself to be a lucky or an unlucky person? Mm. Lucky do or unlucky? So, would you... so I, would, I would probably go along with the thing of um, I've been lucky. Um, I feel like I've been really lucky in my career and in my life. And I think some of that is um, uh, sort of unearned, you know, just privilege or just things happened that were, you know, I was lucky to be born in, cert in a certain place and a certain time and to be able-bodied and all those kind of things. And then I think in my work, there's probably a lot of stuff where I've, um, 
like I've been I've been very open. I think there's a real theme in your book of of um, just being open to possibility and being curious. And I think there's been a lot of times in my career where I've just kind of you know like you say in the book just met somebody and then it's turned into something that's turned into a client or turned into a thing. And you know so I think I would probably class myself as a sort of consciously lucky person. Yeah. And and that's great. And I think you 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 made a you know a really interesting differentiation there between what is just given to us, right? I mean, a lot of my work is in in context of extreme poverty. The the base level where someone starts out there in terms of potential serendipity is, is obviously much less than the base level we have in the way we can start out. And yet at the same time, you see in every context some people seem to have a little bit more luck than others. And so that's the fascinating thing. And um, the reason I've been asking you uh, why you consider or if you consider yourself to be lucky is that a lot of experiments show that people who consider themselves to be lucky tend to have more luck in the future, not because of some kind of voodoo type things, but because of the way they look at the world. And so there's one example that I'm a, a big fan of, which is more of an entertaining one. But again, there's a lot of other kind of experiments like this is they pick, you know, people who consider themselves to be very lucky and people who consider themselves to be very unlucky. You know, people who say bad things tend to happen to me. I'm always in accidents and so on. We probably all know people on this continuum between very lucky and very unlucky. And so they pick one of each and they say, walk down the street, go into a coffee shop, grab a coffee, sit down, and then we'll have our interview, our conversation. Now, what they don't tell them is that there's hidden cameras along the street and inside the coffee shop. There's a five pound note, so money, right in front of the coffee shop. And inside the coffee shop, there's this one seat next to this extremely successful businessman that can make big dreams happen. Now, the lucky person walks down the street, sees the five pound note, picks it up, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, they have a conversation, exchange business cards, potential opportunity coming out of it. We don't know that part. The unlucky person walks down the street, steps over the five pound note so doesn't see it, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, ignores the businessman, that's it. Now, at the end of the day, they ask both people, how was your day today? So the lucky person says, well, it was amazing. I made a new friend, found money in the street and, you know, potential opportunity coming out of it. The unlucky person just says, well, nothing really happened. And, and that's really the point that every situation has some kind of opportunity in it. And, and we can talk more about this also, even in the toughest of circumstances, that that is the case, because then it can become an inflection point for something good. But it's really this idea that the way we frame the world, the way we look at the world, makes us more alert to a lot of those kind of opportunities. I find a lot of money in the street because I expect it to be there. Unfortunately, mostly pennies, so it doesn't really help my lifestyle, but um, it's, uh, it, it's those kind of things. Do you know, so my son, so I live in Bryson on the south coast, and uh, uh, if you've been to Brighton, you'll know Brighton Pier has a big amusement arcade. Mm -hmm. My son yeah. loves going in the, yeah. in the amusement arcade, and they have the little two-penny machines. And every time I go, go in there, I get a free play. And why? It's because I'm scanning, like as I expect it to be. There. But there's always one that's just dropped out and no one's seen it. So, uh, yeah, it sort of proves your yeah. point. Yeah. Um, there was also, I don't know if you've seen, have you seen the Darren Brown TV show where he talks about luck? And um, he does a really similar experiment to that where um, he sort of stages people, you know, finding money or not finding money in the street. And then they have, they have this guy with a, a sort of clipboard and he says um i just need to ask you two questions and then if you ask the if you answer the two questions i'll just give you 50 pounds and so obviously the lucky person is the open one who just says yeah and it's like what's your name and he says his name it's like um what do you think of cheese or something and he's like yeah and then he just gets 50 quid and then the unlucky person is just like no 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 i don't have time and 
and just walking past. So yeah, it really is. Um, it really is a kind of, it's about, you know, being open, isn't it? And kind of scanning for possibilities. Well, and, and, and there's a lot of hope, I guess, also in terms of, you know, for closet introverts like myself, where, you know, yes, if you're more extroverted, you are more likely to speak to that businessman and then more likely you get opportunities out of networks and, and things like that. But, you know, a lot of serendipity comes from quiet sources, from calm sources. When you take, you know, a different street to work in the morning and you open your eyes and you realize, oh, that bookstore, there's this book in there that could be a podcast. You know, those kind of things where once we open our eyes to it, to your point uh, of your son, right? Once you open your eyes to it, it tends to happen more often and it doesn't have to be interactions only. Yeah, for sure. Um, I liked your little um, sort of definition of the different types of serendipity. I think that might be quite useful to share with people. So you've got Archimedes serendipity, post-it note serendipity, and then Thunderbolt serendipity. Should we just talk about those? So, I mean, Archimedes is, I suppose, the the most famous um, story when it comes to serendipity, right? Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and the way they differ, so they all have the same process, which is something unexpected happens, someone connecting the dots and then it turning into a positive outcome. But where they differ is, is someone already looking for something or is it kind of completely out of the air? Um, and so, so Archimedes, essentially, he was already looking for something, right? He wanted to help his king to figure out, is this crown full of gold or was the king swindled into a golden crown? And so he was trying to figure out, oh, my God, what could be the solution to this? But he didn't find it. And so he was like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to chill out. I'm going to go to the pu public baths. So he goes to the public baths, kind of, you know, puts himself into the water. And then he realizes, Eureka, wow, actually... You know, the way the water parts will tell us about the weight of and, 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 and the density and so on. And so essentially, that's how then he found his solution unexpectedly. So to something he was already looking for. I mean, for your listeners, it might be, you know, let's say you're already looking for the kind of job you want to get. And then unexpectedly, so the sister of your mother's friend tells you about that opportunity. You wouldn't have expected it comes from that source but you actually were looking for something along those lines anyways. And then the, the kind of, you know, the most exciting, of course, is the kind of how a lot of love stories happen, which is the Thunderbolt one, which is kind of, in a way, you're not looking for anything. You might sit in a coffee shop, but you were looking for nothing. And then from one second to the other, there's this one person you, you bump into and you're like, oh my God, this could be it. And so it's kind of like you were not looking, but it just happened. And then the third one is, is really kind of the posted type where, Posted serendipity is, is around this idea that you are looking for something. So in this case, someone was looking for a stronger glue, right? Um, and then they realized, oh my God, actually it could be much more effective to make a weaker glue and make that as a posted node um, and then uh, kind of have that. And so that's essentially saying you're looking for something, but then in the process of looking for it, you find something else. Yeah, which I guess is also like the Viagra example that you uh, mentioned before. Um, the other Thunderbolt one, which I thought was really nice, you tell the story of Sofa Sounds, S-O-F-A-R, if people don't know Sofa Sounds, um, which is a really good example of Thunderbolt serendipity. So um, that came about because people were annoyed at a concert. Yeah, exactly. They were at a concert. They said, oh, my God, it's so annoying that everyone's just on their phones and like it doesn't feel like intimate to have this music experience. And so they were like, oh, my God, why don't we create an intimate music experience at home where everyone puts just their, their phones away and everyone's just in the moment. And so that's how Sofa Sounds became a really interesting kind of um, experience led organization, right? Where around the world you have those kind of local experiences in people's houses uh, when you listen to, to interesting uh, bands. And so that kind of in a way came completely unexpected because they were just annoyed. And that's how a lot of entrepreneurial ideas emerge, right? That you're just annoyed about something and then they're like, OK, let me fix that. Yeah, um, 
there's a lovely quote. So just on this theme of being open, um, there's a lovely quote um, from Tony Shea, the um, sadly now no longer with us, but the the founder and CEO of Zappos. And he says that Zappos aims to hire lucky people who can bring their luck to the company, um, which I just, I just think is just such a such a lovely idea. He had a really nice way of um, making you know management and business just feel like sort of fairy tales and just something really something really beautiful. Um, what would you say would be like when you work with organisations? Um, what would you say is like the best way to distinguish the lucky people from the uh, or the open people from the sort of less than lucky and less than open people? Yeah, well, it's an interesting question, right? Because I guess the one one part is how do we differentiate, and then the other one, how do we turn the unlucky ones into, into luckier ones, right? Because um, we probably really want to help people to to do that, and and so um, the first piece really comes back to Tony's idea that what they did when they hired people, they they in their application process essentially put something in questions like you know on a scale of one to ten, how happy, uh, sorry, how lucky do you do you think you are? And there's no right or wrong answers in those kind of uh, questions, but but essentially it's a red flag if it's either one or ten, right? If it's one, you're like, okay, this is probably someone who's gonna like bring a, a really like interesting vibe in here, so maybe that's not right for us. And ten means maybe you're a little bit too overconfident that like you can shape everything in your favor. And so if you have an eight or something, that's kind of like someone who according to our experiment also right would be the kind of person who probably attracts a bit more luck and things like that but the core idea is really to trigger more conversations around this and to really kind of see what's the mindset of the type of person i'm hiring and you know when i work with organizations one of the things we focus a lot on is how do we essentially work also with the people we already have so if, if we have people already um, how do we incentivize them to look out for the positively unexpected in very simple ways right nobody wants to everyone's always talking about innovation and, and so on but nobody really wants to change nobody really wants to you know have that anxiety of oh my god things are all changing at once and so I think the core idea with this is to say you don't have to change everything at once you can start in, in small steps one for example being in the weekly meeting asking people what surprised you last week and then people might say oh it really surprised me that XYZ and to give an example one of my favorites that you would have discovered if you were to ask these questions in meetings is the potato washing machine the potato washing machine essentially a couple of years ago a company in China that, that I've been collaborating with they received calls from farmers and the farmers told them so they produce washing machines refrigerators white hole like you know white white goods and so um, the farmers called them up and said your crappy washing machine is always breaking down. Well, why is the washing machine breaking down? Well, we're trying to wash our potatoes in it and it doesn't seem to work. And so, you know, what would we usually tell them? We would probably try to quote unquote educate the customer, right? We'll probably say our marketing plan says that we are supposed to sell these to people who actually wash their clothes. Now, they did the opposite. They said, you know what? That's unexpected. That's very surprising. But there's probably a lot of farmers in China and in the world who have a similar problem. So why don't we build in a dirt filter and make it a potato washing machine? And that's how the potato washing machine surprisingly emerged. Now, if you had a weekly meeting where you ask what surprised you last week, someone might say, well, it surprised me that people use our product differently. And then you might be like, oh, interesting. We can probably either innovate or a lot of times actually it saves you a lot of costs because you identify mistakes and misplanning much earlier in the process because people can share their unexpected ideas. And I think there's a lot to learn from companies like Pixar around how to, in a way, increase that kind of psychological safety because a lot of times unexpected ideas don't feel mature enough yet. They don't feel like, oh, they are there yet. And so at Pixar, you know, they would start meetings uh, with the question or with the, with the idea, 
look, at the, at the beginning, all ideas are bad. Now let's start the meeting. And, and what you're doing here is you're de-risking it for people to bring in unexpected serendipitous ideas. Yeah, it's this idea of psychological safety, which I've been um, writing a lot about for my new book as well. And, you know, essentially this idea that often, you know, the things that organizations really need to hear are often the things that it's most risky personally for one person to voice, right? So if it's like the brilliant genius idea, then often, unless you're the most confident person in the room, you probably think... I'm going to look a bit foolish if I give this idea and it doesn't actually fly or it just feels like it's such a good idea that there must someone must have thought of it before. Um, and then the opposite's also true, right? So when someone else has a, an idea that is being championed and you've got some really good data or reasons why it wouldn't work and you're like not comfortable with speaking up and, and sort of going against the consensus or going against the grain, that stuff's really hard. So you have to create a very trusting environment where people feel um, able to to innovate and to question and to be curious and open. Um, what do you what do you kind of do? So I th- I love some of those exercises and um, I'd love to come back to a couple of those questions in the book. Is there anything that you do in terms of the way like you manage people or you set teams up that really help to sort of drive that um, that sort of higher level of communication with more psychological safety? Yeah. I mean, one way that, and, and obviously I'd love to learn more about your new book. That's, that sounds very intriguing, uh, what, what you're bringing together there. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm a big fan of, of very simple practices that allow us to create that and, and that allow to create the trust and the sense of belonging um, that we need to, to create serendipity amongst people. A lot of times, you know, we might talk about the individual that comes up with an idea, but usually a lot of times it's a social process, right, where people interact and, and come up together. And so I'm a big fan of things like the project funeral where the project funeral is all about saying whenever an idea doesn't work, instead of you know just hiding it, which we most of the times try to do, right? We don't want to be the loser who messed something up or who didn't uh, know that an idea wouldn't work and things like this, which is a pity because we don't really learn from each other, right? Successes don't have that much insight versus usually things that don't work have a lot of insight. And so the idea of the project funeral is to say whenever a project doesn't work, the person who is responsible for it presents it in front of project managers from other divisions and reflects on what didn't work and why it didn't work and what to do better next time. And so uh, the idea here is that you give people a platform not to celebrate failure, but to celebrate the learning from what didn't work. And so in this one example, uh, there was this kind of amazing window technology that doesn't absorb the light. And, you know, the project manager laid it to rest and said, look, I learned that the market just wasn't big enough. And, you know, I'm putting it to rest now. Now, someone in the audience goes like, hey, 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 have you considered what this could mean for solar? Have you considered if you take that technology into a solar context, how much energy that might absorb? And that's how, quote unquote, serendipitously so, part of their solar division emerged and became one of their, their key business arms. And so the point is that they created a practice and a culture that allowed people to connect the dots for each other, which is where most of the serendipity tends to happen. Yeah, for sure. Um, I love that this list that you've got in the middle of the book around making it happen. So, you know, really, so you call it the serendipity workout. Um, so you've got scheduled times in your diary that are reserved for making um, and treat that calendar item as if it was a, a real meeting. So um, do you want to talk to us about that? Like just the idea of having that really kind of scheduled making time. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a big fan of that idea of maker versus manager schedule, which is essentially saying, 
most of us tend to be in a constant manager schedule mode, right? Which is essentially the idea, meeting, 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 and then, you know, chuck, chuck, chuck. Uh, and, and, and usually what happens is for people like this, grabbing a quick coffee is just grabbing a quick coffee. But if you're doing conceptual work, which might be writing a paper, which might be doing a strategy plan, which might be anything that, that involves deeper thought where you have to be focused for a while or coding, things like that, there actually you need longer periods of time where you can be immersed. And if you now want to grab someone for a quick coffee, that takes them completely out of this. And it's not just the five minutes for the coffee. It's the kind of getting back into it and so on and so on. And so I've become a big fan of saying I have to protect my maker space. I have to protect my maker time because I used to be the kind of person I love going for coffee with people and stuff. So I would be like, yeah, great, quick coffee. But then I realized I would be frustrated in the evening because I didn't get stuff done, to your point, right? I wasn't productive in the sense of actually I was busy but not productive. And and so it's it's kind of like well, what I find fascinating is to think about how do I protect that maker space and it really comes back to, you know, there's a lot of studies around how, for example, open office spaces lead to less productivity. Because if you're a coder and you have constantly people just like picking your brain for a quick second, you don't get stuff uh, properly done. Same with academics. I, I remember when they tried to introduce uh, open office spaces at, at one of my universities, um, people literally started working from home because they were like, I can't be interrupted all the time. And so it's really this kind of idea of how do you protect your time to actually get stuff done and be productive versus just busy. Yeah, and I'm a real fan of that as well. So most of my mornings are kind of blocked out. It's like that's the that's the sort of create time for me. Um, I love this one. You got a couple near the end that sort of have the same uh, sort of energy to them. But basically, re- reaching out to the top people in your field and asking for feedback on the ideas, and you know, creating that connection, saying that you're inspired by them, but then then saying, can you give me some feedback on on my work? Like, it's hard to see that if you did that to the top five people in your field and you got a couple of responses, that something good wouldn't come of that, right? Exactly. And, and, and that's really, it's a numbers game, right? You do that with 10 people and one or two of them will get back and say, hey, great, I just retired from XYZ, have more time at the moment, happy to do it. So, so the point here really is how do you, I think like a lot of us have a lot of respect from people who made it, right? So, so if you have someone who's extremely kind of high up in some kind of hierarchy or something, we might have a lot of respect for this idea that this person is kind of far removed from us because they made it and we're yet on, on that journey. And so who, who are we to kind of target, like or to speak with that person? And, and so actually funny enough, when you go to, to high level conferences, the most interesting person a lot of times, uh, you know, like talks with the people they already know because they're kind of like, well, everyone else seems to be too shy to actually speak with me. And so I think what's what's really interesting is um, to your point to think about who are the kind of five to 10 people in my field who are the most inspiring people, like really being kind of ambitious in that. And then really kind of with LinkedIn second degree contacts or, you know, there's all these email databases where you can literally find everyone's email nowadays and, and being very non-obtrusive, right? But really kind of saying, hey, look, I've been extremely inspired by your work um, and would love to kind of like briefly talk about XYZ thing. So, so, so just kind of like very open, honest um, and in an inspiring way. And a lot of times, especially those people who made it, when they are now at a point where they want to mentor people or else, if you're the kind of person who, who feels like someone they would actually want to mentor, it's actually quite likely a lot of times they go back. I've always been fascinated by how it's more probable that someone extremely senior gets back to you than someone who's kind of like mid-manager because the mid-manager is still on this kind of red race. They have to make it. They kind of, you know, very focused on this versus if, you, if you're the CEO who just retired, 
maybe now is the right time to mentor someone, right? And so it's kind of those things where um, it's really kind of aiming high and, and assuming that you have something to give, which is making someone feel special and, and making them feel special in a way that others who kiss their behinds might not make them uh, feel. And I suppose also the part of that is it's a numbers game, isn't it, as well? So probably that person who's on their way up and still in the right race, they probably get approached 500 times a week, whereas the people right at the top of the game um, who've already made it, people are generally quite intimidated by the idea of reaching out to them. So they just get fewer requests probably too. So, uh, well, until until this podcast goes out and then it'll all change, right? And even if they get a lot of requests, I mean, that's always the fascinating thing, right? If you if you look at someone like Adam Grant, right? He He's the kind of person, he gets so many requests, as you can imagine, because he's so visible and one of the best, like, or probably the best in his field. But at the same time, he's extremely responsive to things that feel meaningful to him. And I've, I've seen that with a lot of people across different fields, especially kind of CEO type people who they are extremely responsive to things they care about. And then the rest, they have their bound, like their gatekeepers, right? Like the, the executive assistant just directly deletes it. But I think that's why it's so much about making it meaningful uh, versus just kind of like sending a mass email to 20 people. Nobody gets back to that. Absolutely. Um, there's a couple of other sort of um, ideas from the book that just feel like they're sort of um, stepping stones into other things. Um, I wanted to really briefly just talk about um, something that's very close to my heart, which is um, in a cancer-free way, resurrecting the smoking room. Um so, uh, you know, you talk about the smoking room in your book. Like, so I've got this um, story from early on in my career where I was I was in the smoking kind of uh, shelter outside. Um, this is, you know, the days where you weren't allowed to smoke inside anymore. But I got to know like a really senior um, manager when I was working for this bank. Um, like 100% just because we were both smokers and so he needed a lighter and so we had those five minutes and stuff. Um, what are some of the ways that we can recreate just that um, that serendipitous connection sort of, you know, vertically, horizontally across organizations that doesn't involve us getting cancer? <laughs> it's a great question. And, and, and I think especially in the virtual world also, right, how do we recreate those water cooler moments that, that, that are beautiful and especially for people who are, uh, you know, not yet there, like that you could run into the boss of your boss every every week, right? That's kind of like also intriguing. And and, and, and so um, th there's two things I, I found fascinating there. One is to learn from um, settings like Burning Man, for example. They've been extremely good at, so Burning Man, you know, when they have these tent villages, essentially, what they've been doing is they put art in the middle, for example, of the square, and the art is slightly controversial or slightly kind of so something that piques your interest when you walk by. And so what you do is you walk by, it piques your interest, and then you might comment to the person next to you, oh, my God, that looks strange, doesn't it? And so that's kind of the conversation starter. That's the equivalent of can I briefly kind of like have your lighter is essentially, oh, my God, we're both facing the same strange thing right in front of us. And so I think art is an interesting kind of thing in terms of or other kind of triggers that could potentially have people talk about something. I do that a lot um, when I'm in audiences, you know, that are bigger. I, I say something like, look, take the, the weird German as an excuse to now talk with everyone uh, and, and ask them X, Y, Z question. And just kind of like, in a way, what you're trying to do is you try to give people an excuse of why they can talk with each other um, and, and take the risk away that it looks weird or that they're kind of the, the creep. Um, and, and, and then the second, I think, is, is really around um, the, the, the virtual piece, right? Where um, if we had a lot of those moments in the smoking corner, at the water cooler, in the canteen, what do we do virtually? And so I'm a big fan of things like random coffee trials, where the idea is that 
people across the organization sign up for a couple of times they are free and then they get randomly matched with people across different layers of hierarchy across different parts of the organization for a quick coffee and they might have an inspiring prompt like what's the challenge you're facing in the organization and how can i help you whatever it is but the point is now every week you could still stumble into someone who can truly uh, change your life or at least help you in some way or the other yeah yeah i love that um you quote in the book um someone i'm a big fan of Oliver Berkman who I've had on the podcast before and um yeah feels like a, a kindred spirit on the subject of productivity um but his quote is essentially along the lines of um everyone is winging it all of the time um so can I ask you like when do you most feel like you're winging it and what are your thoughts on on that idea oh at the moment with with a baby girl now I'm literally so so you know it, 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 that whole idea that parenting is about letting go of of perfection I guess you know at the moment really really shows itself but but to your point I think um, it is the first one yeah six months and you know yes (laughs) completely but I have an amazing you know I feel like we have we found our um, my my partner is wonderfully fantastic and, and and so I've been learning a lot from her in terms of how to to navigate this um but 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 so what I found fascinating is exactly to your point that I think when you start out or when you, you know, grow up in Germany, things like this, you assume you can like plan everything, map everything, and then real life happens and it's it's not really planable. And and so what I found fascinating, I work a lot with senior executives and, and, and after the fourth glass of red wine, everyone will tell you, you know, a lot of times I'm just winging it. A lot of times I'm just kind of making it up as I go. And then, and then I had a, you know, they might be like, oh, I had a hunch in the morning. And then I went to the shareholder meeting and I told them about it. And I asked my assistant to briefly make up three reasons why that makes sense. You know what I mean? And so it's kind of these things where we tend to post-rationalize a lot because we had a hunch or a feeling and, and things like this. And one of the things I've realized is that a lot of times the most successful people we can learn the most from when we ask them about where their gut feelings came from and what they did with it because it's really that shift from the kind of naive gut feeling which is fight or flight which is kind of a lot of times when you're like just starting out like you you have fight or flight right you either run away from something or you're excited but then what a lot of these senior executives have is is this kind of mature gut feeling where they've seen patterns they've seen they've understood how people work and then they tend to trust their gut because the, the gut essentially, the subconscious obviously perceives much more than the conscience. And so it's this fascinating thing that, that I've become a big fan of, of saying, yes, sometimes we have to wing it, but we can smartly wing it in the sense that we can, we can, we can you know, sense into our gut. And if our gut tells us something, do as much research as we can about why is that? If I just had a meeting where cognitively I thought this is the perfect business partner, but my gut tells me something's fishy about this, Back in the past, I would have over relied on my, you know, cognitive kind of system that's all about saying rational and X, Y, Z. Nowadays, I'm like, okay, if my gut tells me this, let me ask for one more recommendation letter before I start this relationship because X, Y, Z. And so it's really this kind of mature gut feeling that helps us to wing more smartly. Yeah. And um, it's one of those things where you, I think when you first get into your first job, you kind of look up to everybody because you're at the bottom of the ladder and everything's new and you don't you know that you don't know very much and then it's kind of when you first get that promotion um to the job that someone else had and you were really looking up to them it's like that really big sort of aha moment isn't it of like ah maybe like no one knows and also when um when one of your like school friends growing up becomes either a teacher or a doctor then you go oh it's like everybody is winging it all of the time 
Absolutely. I mean, that's the fascinating thing, right? That, that COVID showed again. I mean, go to a doctor and like a doctor, what is a doctor? A doctor essentially has a hypothesis, right? They would say, okay, you tell me you have a headache. Why do you have the headache? And then you test a little bit, but you're just testing hypotheses. And then in the end, you try to make a recommendation. And, you know, a lot of my work is in poverty contexts where if you have a non-well-trained doctor, a lot of the hypotheses are extremely wrong. And so they do more damage than good. And so the point really is around this, that I'd rather have a doctor who says, I don't know, let me try to figure it out, than a doctor who gives me the wrong hypothesis and then the wrong medication. And so it's really, I think, to your point, the, the most successful doctors and the most successful teachers are also the ones who know the limitations to their knowledge and then kind of like try to figure something out and Google it. You will see a lot of doctors nowadays. I always enjoy this so much. You know, when a doctor says, I'm so sorry, I have to briefly do X, Y, Z other thing where you know they literally just have to Google something because they didn't know how X, Y, Z plays out, you know? So it's kind of, it's those fascinating things. Yeah. Um, there's a bit in the book where you, you quote an anonymous CEO and you're talking about um, like why do we struggle with the idea of serendipity um, in business and basically it feels like it sort of goes against our culture quite a lot and there's a discomfort because the CEO is saying well I can't really stand up to my board and uh, my investors and say well this success was just luck you know you kind of have to attribute it to something that builds your own credibility so what do you think about the the general kind of relationship between serendipity and then the way we think as a culture like do you think we need to kind of reframe how we think about luck and serendipity yeah well that's actually at the the core of this work um and and what i'm most excited about is essentially I think the old school leadership style is what a lot of CEOs intuitively would do, right? They would go into a boardroom and say, this was my strategy, this is exactly what I did, and then exactly this panned out. That's exactly how we would present a CV to a new employer, right? We would go in and say, I wanted to do this, then I did this, and then I did exactly this. This is not how life works, right? And everyone knows that. Um, How life usually works is, you know, that like something unexpected happens along the way. And so one of the key things of this work is to say, you know what, rather than seeing the serendipity as something that you feel you're out out of control or you kind of like, you're not a good leader, see it that you created the mindset and the corporate culture that allowed that to happen. And so now you can go into the boardroom and say, I had this sense of direction. Then we unexpectedly found this information, we incorporated this, and now we came up with something even better. And so now what you're doing is you're making it more active. You're saying, we were not surprised by this in the sense of it's threatening us. We actually made that part of the plan. And I think, you know, we just did a a survey or not a survey, but an interview series with over 40 CEOs who are running big companies, companies like MasterCard and others. We sat down with them and we said, what is it that really makes you successful? And one of the key themes that came out of it was that they're extremely good at saying, we have some kind of sense of direction. So if I'm the CEO of MasterCard, I'm saying, I want to get 500 million people into the financial system. But then I actually built the unexpected into the plan. Here's an approximate strategy, but I'm telling you already now that as new information comes in, we're building it in. And so what you're doing now is you actually take real control over uncertainty versus this kind of illusion of control. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, There's... um Actually, a thing in your uh, dedication at the beginning of the book, which um, is a, a nice segue into the, the book that I'm writing at the moment. So um, you you dedicate the book to your parents. And one of the things that you thank them for is kindness. And so this book that I'm working on is about kindness and leadership. So this feels like something, if you're putting that in the dedication of the book, it's something that 
you have obviously admired in them and and presumably have a real kind of sense of connection with so can I ask you about that I'd just love to hear your thoughts on um, how kindness has Im- impacted and shaped your own work well you know when you think about what it means like to me a lot of like what kindness means is accepting people accepting someone for who they are or want to be um, and, and and being you know treating them in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that allows them to thrive in this world and so so what I've found and learned a lot from my parents is that you know they 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 some you know they they had their rules and they had their things but they always 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 gave me the feeling that um, you know they had my back and that 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 I was worthy I was valuable um, and whatever would happen the situation wouldn't define me like I would always be okay and I think that kind of feeling of of um, you know that you in a way um, are that you'll be okay I think that's that that comes you know th- there's some privilege associated with that right that that in a way. Um, I think materially um, that that like some people don't have, but I think it's much more the emotional and uh, component that's much more around this question of how do you know that your self worth is not only related to your achievement or, or something else. And so, to me, kindness is a lot around when we approach someone. Everyone just in this world wants to be seen, they want to be appreciated, and and they somehow just want to make it some kind of meaningful life for them whatever it means for them in that's that context and so to me kindness means a lot to 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 try to understand the person to try to understand what drives them versus kind of you know getting into some kind of like uh, impression management type thing where nobody anyways feels comfortable about which is by the way why i'm not a big fan of, of things like long small talk or something because i think people get into autopilot impression management and so on versus if you ask you know slightly different questions so instead of what do you do uh, asking something like what do you enjoy doing what it does is it shifts it away from autopilot impression management to oh actually I love XYZ no I love that too and so then we find these deeper common denominators versus just kind of like making a statement about how impressive we are yeah for sure I'm, I remember hearing years ago someone um, uh, giving another sort of version one of those questions that you can ask to get away from the autopilot small talk and it was like um, ask people what they're either scared or excited about right now as instead of saying what do you do uh, it's just like another way of doing that but we do spend so much so much time in those real like small talk conversations um, just on the kindness thing can you think of examples of leaders that you've worked with or sort of cultures of organizations that you've worked with that you felt are, are particularly kind yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's interesting because I, I try to self-select. I, I try to work only with people who are kind. I mean, I, I've learned the hard way that when you learn with, when you work with people who might not be as kind and who still could help you achieve things, at some point you will have a values clash and, and that's just not worth it. Um, and again, that, that comes to the point, right? How much can you afford to try to pick um, X over Y? But I've become a big fan. I have a lot of these conversations with my students around, would you join XYZ Bank where you have a competitive shark environment, where you know that you will not be valued for generosity and so on? Or do you want to be in an environment where, yes, you will earn less and your student debt, you know, you will need another year to pay that back? Um, but at the same time, also, you will probably thrive with the person you are versus having to pretend you're someone you're not. And so I think we we talk a lot about these kind of dilemmas and, and these kind of ideas of at the end of the day, um, if you want to be kind and you want to be generous, you need an environment that values that. Um, you can always try to shape your environment, but that's very hard when you just start out. And so I think um, I've become a big fan of trying to select environments based on the question if, if those people 
have an interest in having other people thrive too, which which to me, is, as mentioned, is at the core of, of, of this. Yeah, totally. Um, just before I let you go and um, ask you to just share where people can find out more about what you do, um, something sort of struck me when I was... Uh, when I actually first heard about your book, which was um, there's a lot of kind of YouTube influencers and Instagram influence out there doing this whole thing about manifesting. Do you know about all this stuff? So it's this idea that like if you just channel and imagine that there's like luck and abundance coming your way, then it will come your way. And it's like it's a really kind of um, uh, sort of exploitative little corner of the Internet, right? Because it's all these people kind of signing up and sort of paying money. And it also comes into... Um, religious tithing sometimes where it's like the more like they call it seed money so you pay your seeds into the church and then the idea is that God will sprout these bigger uh, trees and stuff so I just wonder if there's like when as you're writing the book did you did you come across that kind of stuff and do you kind of think about the the sort of dark side of um, telling people that um, luck is abundant for them and it's going to be great yeah well, I think that's essentially exactly the big difference between kind of, I think when you're going out there and, and think you can just sit there and then manifest things and then they just happen. I don't think that's ever happened for a lot of people. Um, I, I, you know, what, what makes it interesting, I think, from a science-based perspective is when you think about what makes it more likely that you're able to connect the dots is that you have a certain sense of direction, right? So if you're saying in five years, I want to build a portfolio around my podcast and I want to build this business and this business, this business, it's more likely now that when you bump into someone at a conference that they can like that you can connect the dots with them towards that, right? So that's not about manifesting it because you're sitting at home and like literally just thinking about it. It's literally you going out there and saying, I have a certain idea of where I'm going and I'm connecting this to it. So I think that's the big difference that it's it's not just about waiting for it to come. And But what I find more interesting also in, in that regard is, so let's say you have the kind of manifestation kind of crowd that's in a way um, uh, probably milking a little bit the, 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 their, their ideas around, around some of these questions. And then you have on the other side, I think, a very big valid question around, um, you know, when you're very religious, for example, what is the role of fate or destiny or things where in a way there might be an idea of what is already given for me and I'm just kind of like going through the, the motions. And I had that conversation recently with a priest or with a, with a kind of very um, religious person. And, and I think we, we, we got to a conclusion that my wife beautifully summarized in this kind of saying, um, I'm trying to do it justice, which was around this idea that it's this kind of story where um, there's this, this person who prays to God all the time and says, God, please, please make me, you know, rich and make me win the lottery and, and I really want to do it. And then he prays and prays and prays and nothing happens. And then at some point God says, well, but you got to buy a ticket. Like I can't let you win the lottery if you don't buy the ticket. And so, so that was kind of like in a way where we ended up to say, look, there might be something there, but you also got to do something. Like you also kind of, you know, even if, if, if there is a plan for you, you might as well get in motion and, and do something around it. And I think that's kind of something where I, as someone who grew up with, with kind of less religious influence, I can buy a little bit into that idea. But I think more philosophically speaking, the great question always is, I think, having a sense of direction, whatever it is, right? A key curiosity, interest, purpose, passion, you name it, helps us a bit more because it makes us a bit more alert to what kind of hooks could we cast out there? What kind of questions could we ask and so on? Um, and so I think simply manifesting it without doing anything um, probably makes it a bit tougher to have more luck um, happen. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a good lesson for life and a good place to to close it up. It's just the idea that if you want to win the lottery, probably buy a lot of tickets. That's probably a good 
way to go about it. Um, so, Christian, the book is uh, Connect the Dots. Where, people, where can people find out about you and um, connect with you and hope for some serendipitous connections along the way, no doubt? The homepage is theserendipitymindset.com and I'm at Chris Serendip on uh, Twitter. Perfect. Thank you so much for being on Beyond Busy. Thanks so much for having me. So there you go, Dr. Christian Bush. And thanks, as always, to our sponsors for the show, Think Productive. That's T-H-I-N-K, Productive. Because I know I'm tired, so I don't pronounce the word think think as clearly and sometimes I'm on the phone by the way and and they're like what's your email address and I say graham at thinkproductive.co.uk they say is it sync productive right like with an s and stuff so yeah I've got I've I've kind of become that person that starts by saying it's think productive with a t-h-i-n-k and just like pronouncing it so um yeah go to thinkproductive.com if you want to find out more about what we do and we have offices all around the world so uh there'll be someone near you that can help and um, yeah, really enjoyed that conversation. And uh, Darren Brown, we touched upon there. So go and watch um, that Darren Brown episode, um, The System. And uh, so much of his stuff is, um, I just think is so clever. I think a lot of it, you know, when he talks about, Darren Brown has that thing at the beginning of a lot of his Channel 4 specials where he says, I fuse suggestion, uh, psychological tricks and magic and whatever. I actually think most of it is magic, isn't it? I think that's the general thing with Darren Brown. But I think he's such a good thinker. Like when he did that seance one and it really kind of exposed the techniques of seances and uh, the faith healing one. Like there's so many episodes that are really, um, it's just really like, you know, I just think he's doing great work for society, isn't he? By um, just really raising awareness of some of those kind of charlatan behaviours and uh, sort of magical like illogical thinking and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, go and uh, go and use it as an invitation to to recheck out some of Darren Brown's uh, best work and uh, a couple of re- really great books that he's written over the years as well. Um, what's that one he did? Uh, the one about there's the one about magic and then there's the one about happiness, which I really enjoyed. I'd love to get him on the show at some point. I think I'm going to try and do that. Um, probably when we've changed the format later in the year. So anyway, there you go, Darren Brown, um, and then um, yeah, just. Busy working away on the final um, bits and pieces for my new book, Kind. I'll keep you posted on that. And um, yeah, if you haven't signed up for my weekly email, uh, just go to grahamalcott.com and just fill in the little form on there. We'll put a link in the show notes to that as well. Um, And thinking slightly ahead, but um, November is the launch of um, Six Weeks to Ninja again, which is my um, thing that I do once a year. And it's basically six weeks. It's a couple of hours on a Thursday night. It's on Zoom. And the whole thing is like, get your productivity whipped into shape over six weeks with a whole bunch of people. So if you're interested in that, uh, again, if you just go to grahamalcott.com and then it's forward slash six, like the number six, and then W and then two N. So six weeks to Ninja. Or I think it's just six weeks, isn't it? Yeah, just six. And then the word weeks, I think it is. Uh, We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, but yeah, if you want to sign up for that, uh, we'll start recruiting the cohort for November. And um, yeah, like that's very much the tour of all the content from my main book, my best-selling book, which is How to Be a Productivity Ninja. Uh, but like me coaching you through it. So if you've read that book and never really implemented it, then basically that's what Six Weeks to Ninja is for. If you have not read it before, but you just really feel like your productivity needs a bit of a kick up the ass and a bit of a... A transformation then we give you a copy of the book and then we talk you through it and then 
you know, you get to ask questions and it becomes almost like a kind of live book group for six weeks. So uh, yeah, uh, sign up to Six Weeks to Ninja, basically. Just grahamalcott.com forward slash six weeks. The link's in the show notes. What are you waiting for? Go and do that. We will be back in two weeks' time with another episode. So until then, take care. 